Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 330th episode of Awards Chatter, a Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a true actor's actor who has been widely celebrated for his work on the New York stage in four Best Picture Oscar nominees, 2012's Lincoln for Steven Spielberg and Zero Dark Thirty for Catherine Bigelow, 2014's Selma for Ava DuVernay, and 2015's The Big Short for Adam McKay. And since 2018, on HBO's massively popular and acclaimed drama series Succession, on which he plays Kendall Roy, the second oldest son of a billionaire media mogul, and for which he won the Best Actor in a Drama Series Critics' Choice Award back in January, Jeremy Strong. Over the course of our conversation, the 40-year-old and I discussed his roller coaster journey from a hardscrabble Boston neighborhood to Yale University to struggling New York actor to prominent and appreciated thespian, how interactions along the way with Ian Holm, Daniel Day-Lewis, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and others helped to shape the sort of actor that he wanted to be, how close he came to missing out on his part in McKay's The Big Short, which in turn ultimately led to his involvement in Succession, the pilot of which McKay directed and the series of which McKay EPs, and how he very nearly wound up playing a different Roy sibling, plus much more. And so, with great thanks to Jeremy Strong, with a plea to our listeners to stay home during this difficult time, and without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And uh, in the corona era, we've been beginning each episode by just asking our guess where and how they are weathering this insanity so oh thank you start there (laughs) yeah i I, you know i'm weathering it i feel my wife and i are in denmark um and feeling really really fortunate to be here we are in a small village on the coast of denmark called tisvild which is a beautiful sort of discordantly with the time a pretty idyllic place so we're weathering it very luckily i would say you know and also with a with a really heavy heart uh for home well i guess what i'd like to do now if we can let's jump back in time to a happier time where were you born and raised and and what did your folks do for a living oh wow oh good uh um uh uh, it usually goes right into the sturm and drung of kendall and so (laughs) i was born in boston I was born in sort of in Jamaica Plain, in sort of inner city 
Boston and grew up there. And my mother was a hospice nurse. And my father is a social worker. He ran uh, something called Department of Youth Services, which were, you know, ju juvenile jails in Roxbury and Mattapan in really tough parts of Boston. So I grew up with, with real sort of humanist parents who were both tremendous givers and really empathic people. And then we moved out of Boston when I was about 10. And I grew up mostly in, in a sort of uh, very bucolic suburb, a town called Sudbury, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it sounds like you also spent some time, I don't know if it, if it was also for religious reasons or just for your hobby, but it, it sounds like you were spending some time in a church basement of all places quite a bit as a kid from what I'd read. Yeah. Is that where oh, wow. this all began? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think the truth of it is, I think um, my mother was trying to get me to join this this sort of local performing arts, I don't know what it was. I mean, I think I was four or five years old, so it wasn't there wasn't much uh, performing going on. Although although children are the greatest actors of all because they they don't lie, and they're completely in the moment. So she uh, sort of coaxed me into joining this local uh, group that I think was called Neighborhood Children's Theater down the block, and. Yeah, you know, I don't even, Scott, I don't even remember. It's sort of pre-conscious. It's, sort yeah. of, it's just something that I've been doing since I was so little. And it must have just clicked. I think then it was something, you know, quite simply that I enjoyed and probably found freedom, a greater freedom in doing. Would it be the case that thing, I, I mean, I, I'd be curious if you were, you know, as you got a little older in school, if you continued with, with, performing because I do know, I, I don't know if this was literally the moment where it became serious, but I read in one of the things I, I was reading to prep for this, that there was actually a, a high school trip to London that made yeah. a big difference. No, that's right. Wow. I'm so impressed. <laughs> I had these great English teachers in high school, uh, Bill and Judy Plot were their names, and they, they were also the theater directors. And they are these people you know, unsung heroes, incredibly passionately devoted to the theater as an art form and passionately devoted to engendering a love of theater and acting in in kids. And so I'd been part of something called uh, the Concord Youth Theater in the town next to where I was growing up throughout middle school, uh, elementary school. And, and when I got to high school, you know, these guys kind of introduced me to, to more serious plays and... We did a lot of Shakespeare. We did Pirandello. We did we did sort of stuff that was that was quite sophisticated for for mm -hmm. for being a you know a, a teenager. And then they brought us to London on a trip, and I remember going to see uh, Ian Holm play King Lear at the National, and and it was it was a revelatory sort of you know life altering moment. I, I I think I remember quite specifically the moment where Lear is like naked, unaccommodated man. He was, you know, Ian Holm, this actor, you know, who's a gigantic actor, gigantic, seismic actor, and a, and a little guy. He was completely naked, standing in the Cottleswood Theatre at the National in front of, you know, London society, embodying, you know, what's arguably the greatest play ever written. And, and I think there was just something about it that, yeah, just to me, I said, well, that's worth committing your life to if you could ever 
hold a candle up to a moment like that. So not not that long after that, I guess, you must have really made your parents and probably yourself quite quite happy by getting into Yale, which is no small thing. And I know that you originally intended to to zero in on this this focus, what you already knew you kind of wanted to do. But so how, with that being the case, did you end up majoring in something unrelated in a way? Yeah, you know, I did I, because Yale obviously has such a such a great reputation for acting, mainly the drama school, which is a graduate school. And I got in, you know, God only knows how as an undergraduate. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I thought I would be a theater studies major, you know, because I'd been doing I don't think I'd gone more than a few months in my whole life since I was, you know, five years old or something without without doing a play. And it was sort of my oxygen supply and my life force and, you know, just sort of the the thing I was obsessed with. And I remember going to a, this theater studies class, like the first, you know, shopping period when you're when you're trying out classes. And, you know, it just wasn't, I don't want to say anything disparaging, but it was a very theoretical academic model of acting. And, you know, I'd never read Stanislavski at that point. I'd never heard of Meisner. I wasn't an educated actor. I was a scrappy, instinctive actor, which I think I still am, with a, with a fire in my belly. And, and you know, I, there was some voice in me that said I needed to protect that and not get too... I'm already a cerebral enough person and I just remember this guy had like this long, you know, Russian beard and he drew a bunch of the circles of energy on a chalkboard and, and a voice in my head just said, run. Um, <laughs> and I was probably also, to be to be fair, ashamed at, at, that I, you know, at my lack of, of, of sophistication about about acting, which which these other kids seem to have in spades and had read the books and. And, you know, of course, I've since sort of read everything and and occasionally there's something in, you know, in that stuff that that I find, um, you know, epiphanic. But, yeah, no, it was, it, you know, I didn't understand what it was. And then many, many years later, I was reading a, a Michael Billington biography on Harold Pinter and he, ha- and he and he quoted Pinter saying this incredible thing, which was. The more acute the experience, the less articulate its expression. And that's that's for me, that's what acting is about. It's like if you can if you can if you can articulate it or teach it or, you know, you can only really point at it. When you're doing it, it's this intense experience that 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 is acute, but not you can't really, you know, translate it into words. You, you, it's just exists in, you know, in, in the work. And so while you were at Yale, it's not that you were not involved with, with acting anymore. It's just that you did it in a very, yeah, I guess, underground way, right? Yeah, you know, the, it, what's so incredible there, and I was so lucky to, to get to go there, they have all these little theaters in attics, in basements. And there was a theater in my residential college, which was called Trumbull, that was a squash court uh, called Nick Chapel. And I think my first year, my freshman year there, I did, I went through like a Pacino phase where I did every play that Pacino had ever done. So I did, (laughs) I did The Indian Wants the Bronx. I did Huey. I did American Buffalo. And I did Richard III, 
somewhere else. But that was sort of that my first uh, first year there. But I had a you know a pretty insatiable appetite yeah. to just keep doing plays. It was also, and I think this is true for a lot of actors, and it's certainly true for me. Yale was a hard place for me. I, I you know I've, I've I struggled there, and I think I had a lot of uh, insecurities there. You know, not coming from a background that that a lot of the other students had come from, and not having the sort of hyper literate education that that a lot of them had had, and so for me it was a it was a lifeline and a sort of you know life life raft, and and a way of kind of transcending all of that and disappearing into something. It is a great escape, and you sort of you know when it's good, you just get lost in it and 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 disappear. So that really. I think I survived there because of it, uh, and that's sort of where the need comes from. I think I think you kind of have to have a need to do it in a, in an almost primal way. Certainly, when the going gets hard, you know, when you're yeah. out of school. But yeah, no, I kept doing plays, and I got to do some incredible. You know, that's great when you're a student. You get to work on the best writing. You know, I got to do Look Back in Anger. I got to do, Jesus, Murat Saad. I got to do so many plays that, you know, when you when you start working professionally, you don't get to do those roles. You know, I think I was 18 and I did the, that that O'Neill play, Huey, which is written for like a 70-year-old <laughs> guy. So, and, and, you know, there's so much learning that goes on. Uh, just just the discipline of, you know, starting at the at the beginning of a play and sort of letting it letting it happen so that that's sort of your your 10,000 hours now was it in that same time period that you sort of arrived at what i believe to this day is is your approach which is a pretty intense one uh you know everyone wants to just refer to things as the method or something else but your method i i want it seems like it maybe is as you as you've you know mentioned maybe bits and pieces from a lot of different areas but it's intense and it's a it's a gut-wrenching one so i wonder if you can just explain when and how you arrived at it before we talk about how you applied it to any specific roles later on it's funny because i you know i don't know that i can even place it because when i think back in college i know i always approached anything you know i approached plays with a great deal of commitment and seriousness because I just had an innate belief that that was that it was serious, and I you know I remember Phil Hoffman used to talk about it in terms of you know when when you're between the lines, nothing else in the world matters, and you have to believe that and be that committed to it. But you know that of course I didn't you know when I was in college I didn't I hadn't heard him say that, but I think probably doing all the theater instilled in me a sense of authority, which is a, sort of the wrong word, but it's a sense of trusting myself, I guess. And, you know, and I was an English major and, and that, that sort of gave me this great gift of, of spending four years just reading, 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 reading. And I developed a real love and need, I think, and, and, and intellectual sort of um, inexhaustible curiosity. And it seemed apparent to me that you needed to do more than just um, work on the material of the play and more than just internalize that material. You needed to surround yourself and saturate yourself with anything related to it, with the time, 
with with the with the world of it with with anything that might help on an unconscious level i think inform your instincts so that probably started then and you know it's a bric-a-brac kind of thing i i you know i i certainly don't adhere to the method but i guess by now i have a pretty well i don't i i i wouldn't say it's fixed cuz i cuz all i really do is sort of follow the line of intuition and so sometimes it seems like and i just and trust that you know sometimes certain things seem necessary to create a sense of belief in what i'm doing but it's it's uh it's definitely i guess predicated on a belief that as much as possible trying to enter into the the experience that the character is having and as much as possible go through that experience so that you can embody it in a real way but you know i had a lot you know it's like i think i learned a lot and copied a lot from people who who i looked up to people in school people you know actors who i who i admired and you know i did i did go and work for daniel day lewis when i graduated from college as his assistant on this movie that his wife the great director rebecca miller made how did that even come about? I, I read about that. This is the Ballad of Jack and Rose. The movie comes out in 05. I mean, for an aspiring actor, for a young actor, what could be a more yeah, dream job? It was. It was very exciting. It was also, Scott, it was also very, very difficult. You know, because as you can imagine, I think I was 22. And Daniel had been one of my heroes, you know, since I was, I don't know, I probably was 11 or 12 when I saw My Left Foot and... I had a poster of it on my bedroom wall and I pr- tried to be Christy Brown on the floor and, you know, and, th- and that kind of completely in- committed chameleonic work was the thing that excited me and inspired me most. So, yeah, so getting a chance to, to meet the guy and, and watch the way he worked and, and, you know, try to, you know, be a ham on his coattails. But it was difficult because, there, you know, I wasn't getting to, I wasn't there as an actor you know, I was there to be, to assist and to be unobtrusive and invisible, essentially. And mm-hmm. that and, and that ended up being uh, an incredibly invaluable experience for me. And, you know, there's so much, I'm not alone in, in, in revering him. And he's, he's, he's one of the most, uh, you know, wonderful men. But I did learn a lot in terms of, you know, watching watching what he did to to create a sense of belief and and really mainly his willingness to sort of make a fool of himself put yeah. himself through the grinder right yeah, i put mean him, he put, will certainly put himself through the grinder but it you know it it, it is it's like it, i i remember reading this book of interviews with francis bacon and he said all art is a game but if art is going to have any value in this you know, modern age, you have to deepen the game. And I think my takeaway was just to see just how much that guy deepens the game and doesn't spare himself one iota of what the character has to go through. And and it feels like for the, you know, the summons, I mean, God, he would hate it if I spent this interview talking about it. <laughs> the, sum, <laughs> the summons that, you know, what you're called upon to do is, is to... Um, you know, kind of make a sacrifice of your of yourself. What it did, I think, was give me permission to to say, you know, fuck it, I'm gonna I'm gonna work in whatever way feels like uh, is most gonna serve the material. 
And if that means feeling foolish, if that means, you know, because a set is a very, it's a very social place. And I think, you know, and, and Daniel's not alone in this. There are a lot of actors that work this way where in a sense, there's a, there's a division between your social self and your creative self. And I have a belief and a wish, I think, to only enter into that environment in my creative self. And so anything that, that is going to interfere with that, I think you almost have to go on airplane mode and kind of soundproof yourself so that you can really focus. And, it, and that's ultimately what it's about is a certain level and, and, and acuity of focus, which might come across as being intense. But I think it's just being concentrated in a sort of autonomous way. Yeah. Well, so people see a, an actor who's now working at the top of the, the top of the game, and that's more understood and accepted today than I imagine it might have been when you're, you know, shortly after graduating from Yale, shortly after this, I guess that summer, maybe it was a summer with Daniel Day-Lewis. Now you go move to New York, and I think right around 9-11... And That's right. suddenly you've got to pay the bills. And I wondered, how did you hope to do that? How did you end up doing that? If you ended up doing that, it's not easy for a young actor in New York. No, you know, <laughs> I think like most actors, I think you sort of have to have an almost delusional optimism that in a sense doesn't face the facts of, of, of what your circumstances actually are. I think I came to New York with it with a hope and expectation that you know that I'd be able to get an agent that I'd be able to continue doing plays that there would be some kind of traction that you know coming out of Yale having done a lot of work already and you know there wasn't any and I got a job working in room service at a hotel uh called 60 Thompson that was downtown that was sort of like the, you know, a, uh, like a hot spot at the time. And I would go there at like 4.30 in the morning or something and, you know, carry. They they didn't have an employee for their, an, an elevator for their employees. You had to walk up like 14 flights of stairs. Oh, my God. Carrying all the things. So, so you know, so it was stuff like that. I worked a lot of different jobs. I worked as a waiter. I worked as personal assistance to people, anything I could do to stay afloat. But, you know, I didn't always pay the bills. You know, I fucking like found a mattress on the street. I probably shouldn't say this, but like at the time it looked like a nice mattress and they had just brought it down. And so I, you know, I grabbed it with my friend because I didn't have a mattress at the time. So, you know, it was real, you know, there was a time where Con Edison shut my power off and I, I, I had a play at that time. I was doing a play in a storefront on 39th Street. And I think they paid me 50 bucks a week. And, you know, I just didn't have any power for a little while. Jeez. Um, in, in the winter, right? I don't know. I don't, I, I, you know, that might be an embellishment, but it might, might have been, <laughs> it might have been the winter. But, you know, it was, it was difficult. And I think, honestly, it wasn't the, it wasn't the, the instability or the uncertainty that was the most difficult or the financial aspect, even though that was difficult, but I'd never had any money. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't different for me. Did these circumstances ever make you question your career path? Were you ever at the point where you were going to, would you have ever quit? Well, that's the thing. It's, it's sort of the anvil on which you sort of forge yourself. And, and yeah. I think there were 
I know that there were there were a lot of days and times where where I felt a, a tremendous sense of despair and mm-hmm. and sort of being in the wilderness and and questioning you know I couldn't really imagine my life if I if I didn't get to work as an actor at a certain level which is not about success or stardom it's about getting to do you know because unfortunately you only get to do the great plays or the great roles if if you you know have a if you've achieved a certain level of of uh, I guess visibility or whatever, and people know who you are and are going to are going to give you a chance at that. So I guess I didn't know if I would ever be given those chances, but there were little crumbs along the way that I guess enough to keep sort of a sense of belief alive. And honestly, just my need to do it was overpowering. It overpowered the circumstances or any sense that things might not work out. They just, I think I was just, you know, doggedly determined and hell-bent on it. And, you know, a, a Williamstown Theater Festival is a place up in the Berkshires you probably know about. That came about two years in, in, my, in New York, and was like a, 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 an Edenic place for me because I got to do plays again in, in a community and be part of something and be part of that sort of collective sense of imagination and 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 you know the thing you really want as an actor I think is to kind of break your own sound barrier you want to travel somewhere that you haven't traveled before you want to go further you want to reach as far as you can and you want to you know sort of move the needle for yourself and so you know you can only do that through great material and and so I got to go to Williamstown and you know it was incre- it was this incredible place where Edward Albee and Arthur Miller were at the coffee shop and all these great actors and directors from New York are doing plays on the main stage and 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 that was very exciting and that gave me I think a lot of um you know that gave me wings for a while and a sense of a sense of belonging and a sense of yeah. possibility. That's the hardest thing is when you're sort of cut off from a sense of possibility, which I know so many actors, so many actors are. So if there, you know, if there was to be a turning point that we could pinpoint, I believe it might involve somebody who you mentioned earlier, and that's Philip Seymour Hoffman of all people, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. Can you explain how, you first crossed paths with him. I believe it was the first time. What you were doing? Well, you know, it, 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 you know, it was a it was a play I was doing called A Matter of Choice. Uh, that was like an off 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 Broadway play. It was about a sort of uh, a sort of very urban kid living up in East Harlem, and it was a great great part and. You know, I had a day job and I was rehearsing at night and and it was it was, you know, it was like water in the desert when I got this role. You know, it was like nobody was ever going to see this thing, but it almost didn't matter because it was a chance to to do some to do work um, and maybe somebody would see it. And, you know, I wrote out invitations to a million people and tried to get people to come see it and all of that and but there was a night that that uh Phil Hoffman and John Patrick Shanley came and I shouldn't you know I shouldn't over over emphasize probably Phil's you know he didn't say much and but I think he liked the work and and it was Shanley that offered me a play uh from that night but you know 
I'll say that Phil Hoffman was somebody that was all of our, like, hero. He was just magnificent. And, you know, I, I remember him coming when I was at Yale speaking. And he said that the experience of a young actor, if any young actors are listening to this, because I remember it helped me. It's this, it's mostly an experience of please, 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 fuck you. Please, <laughs> please, fuck you. <laughs> so that's what kind of what you go through for 10 years or so. Right. Um, I was doing a play at Williamstown years later, this Turgenev play called A Month in the Country. And I was really, really at sea with it and struggling with it. And I remember we were sitting at this this bar in Williamstown and he, he said that I to err on the side of going for it, just go for it. And that was, a you know, it's a very simple, but very visceral and immediately, you know, you know what that means. Anyway, so that was a that that was that was a that was a turning point for me when Shanley called me. It was a Friday night. I was home. I didn't have it. You know, I wasn't doing anything. And he had just won the, the Tony for his play Doubt. And he had a follow up to the play Doubt it was called Defiance. And he was going to go up to New York stage and film with Chris Cooper and do a workshop of this play. And, and did I want to play this part? And so that, you know, I probably cried, you know, it was like, uh, making contact with, with another, you know, another <laughs> uh, galaxy that you, you yeah. know, that you've been yearning to, 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 you know, enter. And really from there, I just want to note that play defiance was in 2006 for you. 2007, you're at the public in Conversations in Tusculum. 2009, doing a Teresa Rebeck play. That's a, um, and in between, two Lucille Lortel Award nominations in, in three or uh, four year span is pretty incredible for New Jerusalem and The Coward. And so I guess it really did cascade some. I don't know if it felt like that in the moment, but it seems like that was where the, the momentum really started. And also where something else, you know, I guess builds up to, this period in 2008 where it looks like within less than two weeks, your first movie, Humboldt County, comes out on September 26th, and you make your Broadway debut on October 7th in A Man for All Seasons. That Did it feel like it was all happening? I think it did. You know, it did. And, and it felt like a version of, of the life that I hoped for and imagined you know, getting to play Richard Rich in A Man for All Seasons is one of the great parts with Frank Langella. Getting to be on Broadway, I mean, it was like the holy grail for me. And Humboldt County was a film, it was my first film of any kind. And it was the lead in this film that was sort of like, uh, you know, the directors were really, they were like Hal Ashby guys and they were really influenced by Five Easy Pieces. And, you know, they, they, were, they were trying to make a substantial film and did, I think. And I had a sort of liminal experience as an actor working on that. There were some scenes in it, especially that sort of uh, where you kind of have to risk everything and jump and not know what's going to happen in the scene. And I remember reading in college, there's something that Rilke said that all great art is the product of having been in danger. And I think there are certain scenes that you come to a threshold that you just know you don't have anything to bring to, you know, you, you don't, you have to basically, you know, there's this great Garcia Lorca thing where he's talking about the duende, which is the spirit. And he says, you have to rob yourself of skill and security for the duende to come. 
And so that's, I think, you come across these scenes where that is what is required. Mm-hmm. And, and, and plays, too. You know, there's a lot of plays where you sort of just have to give up, I guess. No, so that time, yeah, it's crazy looking back at it because that feels like so long ago to me. You know, and, and at the same time, it's interesting because I still, you know, I could still barely pay my rent. Through all that. Yeah, no way. You know. Yeah, you, you, off-Broadway you know, doesn't pay. No, Broadway doesn't pay your rent in New York. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, you know, but that didn't matter. It was never about money. You know, I would pay to do those jobs. You know, I should, my agents more like me saying that. But, <laughs> but you know, that that feels like if you can do something that you feel like you would pay to do, that is very fortunate. I would just note that A Man for All Seasons, there is a good deal of backstabbing and power grabs it seems like it might have yeah, been yeah. foreshadowing well it's interesting you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm i'm reading uh uh wolf hall i'm making my way finally yes. through wolf hall right now and you know i just read a passage the other day about walter cromwell who was attempting to kill thomas cromwell by inches he was killing him by inches but yeah there's certainly that world but that was i, I would say that that was a time where whatever process that i might have or started to work on. I certainly didn't want to interact with the other actors in a in a kind of breezy, casual way, and then suddenly feel like I'm pretending or acting on stage. And, you know, I read a ton of stuff about that period and about Henry VIII and about sort of the Tudors and, you know, the world of that. And I guess trying to, in a sense, create the dynamic that exists between the characters and allow that dynamic to be there offstage so that so that you don't feel like, I guess that's the real thing, you know? I remember somebody said that James Dean used to sort of do a circle around the camera so that there was no sense that that on one side you're acting and on the other side you're not. And that's the goal, really, is to, is to never act. And so, so anyway, so, so, but, but Man for All Seasons was a harrowing, you know, that, that role, Richard Rich, basically his journey is the slow erosion of his soul. Uh, and then, you know, at the end of that play, Thomas More says to him, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loseth his soul? And, and in a sense, Kendall Roy is also about the sort of annihilation and slow leakage of a, of a of a person's soul, but not to get in, sure. not to jump ahead to that. But no, that was <laughs> that was an incredible time, and I did feel like, listen, my my greatest. I always wanted to do movies, and I always wanted to work in film, and you know, Daniel and and you know, Kramer versus Kramer, and Dustin Hoffman, and Nicholson in Five Easy Pieces, and John Voight in Coming Home, and Pacino in Serpico, and Dog Day, and every you know, those were the those were the things, and so yeah. So the theater, I think, is is always a place that feels like home to me, and I and I will always go back to it. But there's something about film, and it's not it's not the allure of it necessarily, although there it does have a sort of you know patina sort of surrounding it. It's the process of making it that to me now that I find compelling and 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 more challenging in a way. Well, and I think we should say that. From Humboldt County in 2008 began a, a streak that really hasn't ended and hopefully won't end uh, anytime soon. Because let's let's just talk about the great 
filmmakers and films over these next few years, just briefly. I mean, small part in Aaron Moverman's uh, The Messenger the year after, but I know you you and he reteamed years later with, uh, I think it was Time Out of Mind. You've worked twice with a lot of these people who I'm going to mention, which is a, probably the best compliment an actor can receive. So after that, there was both your, well, you're back with Daniel Day-Lewis as his assistant on screen, this time in Lincoln for Spielberg, which must have, must have been kind of a mind-blowing thing. And that same year in 2012, as a CIA analyst for Catherine Bigelow in Zero Dark Thirty, she's another person who you worked with again years later in Detroit. I guess here's where these, you know, a small part like The Messenger maybe gives way to parts with great filmmakers, great fellow actors, uh, in addition to The Messenger now with, with whether it's Daniel Day-Lewis or these other folks that you're with. Just um, as as the film side of things was gaining momentum, it was clear that you wanted to continue to focus on that screen acting was what you had hoped it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the hunger and, and the ambition was certainly there, you know, I mean, being in the, in, in those environments and getting to be part of those films. It's funny, man, when you, when you, when you sort of, it's a bit like, this is your life, you know, I haven't, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, cause you know, here's the thing about acting, which, which I, th- I think a lot of people feel like, I think in order to do your work well, you kind of have to stay perpetually a beginner and you can't ever rest on anything. So in a way, it's just about the next piece of work and, and you have to approach it as a beginner and and start from scratch again. So I don't usually sort of go back and think about all of that, but mm-hmm. it, but it is, um, yeah, I got to work with, with so many amazing writers and directors and watching you know, watching the way that Stephen, watching Stephen and Daniel work together on that film for a few months, watching Catherine Bigelow direct, watching Duval, you know, this is years later. But you get so inspired by by people and it also sharpens your resolve and I think sharpens your, it took me a long time to feel at home on a set the way I feel in the theater because I think I had you know, habituated myself through so many years of being on stage to get to a point where you're so comfortable on a film set that, you know, that you can be free because your job ultimately is to be free. You ha- you have to kind of not give a fuck about anything else. And you're not there to please the, I don't even think you're there to please the director or the producers or the studio or the audience. You're there to serve the character and to tell the truth. And if you can do that, I think in an unfettered and free way, you might please them and, and yeah. serve them. But, you know, the, the, that year I had been in L.A. kind of just trying to audition and trying to get yeah. work. And, and I was having a hard time and I got a call to go back to New York and do this play called The Coward, which was a sort of 
ludicrous play about uh, a, a kind of fop in the 17th century who was a coward and whose father wanted him to fight duels. It was like Barry Lyndon meets the jerk. And <laughs> the whole, I decided, I went up to a house in upstate New York getting ready for it. I went, I, I decided to go back to New York and do play. I was like, I can't, I, this isn't happening for me out here. Maybe yeah. it never will. I'm just gonna go back to New York and do, and do good work in a play with, this, with Sam Gold, who's a great director. Um, so I went up and I sort of, I remember sort of thinking that this character needed to have a voice that wasn't my own and that it should sound sort of like a reed or a wind instrument or something. And so it's sort of trying out all these voices in order to make the material work. And, and then, and, and, and I got a terrible review in the times when it came out, but I think he called me, he said, I sounded like a tone deaf castrato. And I thought (laughs) I did it. You did it. just to tie it together, I, I I did that play and I did a play with Adam Rapp at the Rattlestick about a guy in a wheelchair who had been in Afghanistan. And that was in a 60 seat theater, like above a falafel stand. And everybody came, everybody came to see it. And that was the thing. It was like, I remember M- Meryl Streep was in the audience. The Coen brothers were in the audience, all these, you know, Sam Mendes and, and A.V. Kaufman, the great casting director, A.V. came to see it. And she cast me in Lincoln from that. And that was a, a life-changing thing. And, and, and also it reinforced a belief that if you just commit to, to doing good work, eventually, somehow, you know, and have faith in that, somehow, uh, uh, that manifests that, you know, what you're... Yeah, people will find you. Yeah. Your, your intention. Well, I want to mention a movie that, unfortunately, I don't think it got much of a, a release once it once it went out into the world, but I was lucky enough to see it at the... North American premiere at the Toronto Film Festival in 2013, and your work in this really impressed me, and I will quote someone else who it really impressed, but this was playing Lee Harvey Oswald in Parkland about sort of just the the last days and aftermath of, the, of John F. Kennedy, and you looked unbelievably eerily like the guy, uh, but also just were... It was much beyond that. And I will quote a co-star, Billy Bob Thornton, who said that he, here's what he said. Listen, man, I was leaving you alone on set, but it excites me when actors come up that remind me of when I was coming up, the dedication of being in a character. I said, I'm going to remember you. Apparently he asked you out to tea and and said this. Um, And I guess just in terms of, you know, there's somebody that's uh, a, a colleague who's noticing the level of, commitment that you I mean I don't think you were when they said cut you weren't playing cards with everybody else on that set or no. probably any other <laughs> no but, and you know uh, I, yeah. I I would say that actually that film and 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 working on that role was sort of the first time that I realized that I needed to approach it in a certain way it wasn't a it wasn't an option to to do it any other way because it because it was Oswald and because it is and because the stakes are so high and because it's such an important story, it just felt it felt inevitable and necessary to stay in that and to, to stay in that character. Even when I, you know, I think we did some days where I was on the gurney dead and I felt like it was important to just stay on the gurney dead for the for the whole day to help the other actors sense of belief. But, yeah, I think with that, it, it, it was like, you know it's serious stuff. And, and that was, uh, and also very daunting, you know, Gary Oldman, you, you can't touch 
Gary Oldman's performance of that role. And, and you shouldn't try to, you should try and do something that is your own. And Peter Landsman, you know, wrote this incredible script and he let me, you know, I remember the first day asking if he could just lock me up in a room and then, you know, I'm being, I'm meant to be interrogated by these FBI officers. And can you have these guys kind of rough me up and, 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 and just bring me into the scene and just have the cameras on and let's just go into it. You know, let's not rehearse. I don't know when that occurred to me, but that's definitely something that I am a, a big believer in not rehearsing, which is, which you can't do in the theater, but film, you actually have the chance to make the discovery of a scene and capture that happening in the moment that it happens rather than make a discovery and try and perform it or recreate it. You know, you can, so, so, so he, so he did that. He lined the hall with all these actual Texas police officers. We were in Dallas and, and that was amazing. And, you know, and just went right into the scene. And, and, and I guess from then on, especially when a character is, when a character has, and this is talking in a very pragmatic way, characterization, you know, if, 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 if there's external aspects that are different from you, voice, body, energy, anything, I think, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a line in Hamlet where he says, for use can almost change the stamp of nature. And I think your job as an actor with a role like that is to change the stamp of your own nature through use. So if you do it enough, and if, if you habituate yourself to it enough, you can, I think, kind of transform yourself. And certainly that's something that I've learned from other actors. And certainly that was something I've watched Daniel do. Well, so uh, that was followed the next year with both The Judge with Robert Downey Jr. and Selma for Ava DuVernay and with David Oyelowo. And then comes 2015, where I've got to ask how how this part came about, because it seems like this is Adam McKay, the big short. Uh, you're playing... The gum chewing numbers guy, Vinny Daniel, who is at the hedge fund run by Steve Carell, one of the few people, your character, who saw the collision coming. And basically from that project seems to have I, I, I gathered it wasn't an easy one to become part of. You went through the, the ringer on that, but that once you and Adam McKay did connect, it's it was in a in a major way. Yeah, you know, so much of this is, when I look back at it, so much of it is synchronicity and and luck and, you know, there but for the grace of the gods go, go I. You know, the judge was a real milestone for me because that was, uh, you know, that was, that was a real role. That was a substantial role that when I read it, it sort of screamed off the page for, for to my imagination was the kind of role that I'd always wanted to do. And it took a few months of research and spending time with kids at schools for people with developmental disabilities. And, and it took me going out on a limb in a way that I'd never gone out on a limb before. You know, I'd gone on a limb in the, th in the theater in front of a small audience, but to go out on a limb with, you know, Robert Downey and, and Duval and Vincent D'Onofrio in this big Warner Brothers movie, which was really my first big role in a, yeah. in, a, in a film. And I think there was certainly a sense of, I have to be willing to, to, to make a fool of myself here and just commit to this and really commit 
to this characterization and really commit to my instincts here. But doing that was a very empowering experience. And Downey really, really helped me with that in terms of finding freedom. So around that time, I met Dee Dee Gardner, who runs Plan B with Jeremy Kleiner and Brad Pitt. And Dee Dee really is, has been one of my good angels. Um, and she's the reason that I, that I did Selma, I would say, you know, she and Francine Maisler are my, have been my good angels. And Dee Dee and Francine brought me in front of Adam for the big short, for a bunch of roles. You probably heard this story, but it was, you know, I've said this, but it's like, I felt like I'm in Monty Python and the Knights who say knee, like, where you get each limb just gets cut off one at a time. And at the end, you're just like a bloody stump. Um, but it was that thing where it's like, I thought I was going to get to play Hamlet. You know, I went in for some big roles. And then in the end, I was auditioning for like a one scene where the guys didn't even have a name. They were called maroon and black. And it was like the colors of their shirts. And, and I remember sort of really being like, oh man, fuck these guys. I'm, yeah. not, I'm, I'm not doing maroon or black. And then finally, you know, a week later I was like, okay, you know, will you consider me for maroon? I don't want to play black, but I want to play maroon. <laughs> and then they were like, oh, it's, you know, it's not going to go any further with maroon. Um, but, you know, then after, after getting to a point, and I think spiritually this was actually very important. You know, I didn't get that movie. It was unequivocal. And I was, and I was, I was devastated. There were a few things that I've been really, really devastated by, as any as every actor has been. Money Monster was one of them, and I wasn't even close to getting that part. Hope Springs Eternal, but The Big Short was something I thought, you know, surely I can, I can do. There's something in this I can do, you know. And I, I, I'd read ten books at that point on the on the financial crisis and and devoured everything and felt really sort of loaded up. And I'd had this really great meeting with Adam. And then finally, about a month after, a few weeks after the last, the final no, you know, and there's a, there's a Wallace Stevens poem where he says, it's not about acting, but I'm going to misappropriate it. He says, after, after the final no, there comes a yes. And on that yes, the future world depends. And that was certainly true for me in that moment. You know, I had to, I had to grieve that loss and accept in a sense, fundamentally, that my dreams ultimately weren't going to happen as an actor, you know, that your fantasy of what this is going to be like might not happen. And will you still commit to doing it then if it's not going to look the way you imagined it would? And if you don't, you know, and, and I remember feeling like, well, yes, I'm, I'm going to commit to it because I actually enjoy this and I, you know, I want to just do good work. And then a few weeks later they called and I think Bobby Cannavale had dropped out you know he's probably not not psyched that he had to uh, conflict but um <laughs> but it was it was you know uh uh it was lucky for me and 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 so I went in one more time for this part that I think no one saw me as you know and that's been that's been a thing I remember you know when I was coming up until people see what you're capable of they don't know and they see you a certain way or they they put you in a certain box or category so it's been people who have taken risks with me and given me chances to do something else like Adam did. And, you know, and, and, and so he gave me that part. And, and that also felt like uh, I knew that was a big life moment. I remember exactly where I was and 
And Didi called me and said, do you want to go to New Orleans? And, you know, I hadn't worked in a while when, when that happened. And, and then I said, you know, then I got to work and, and, and kept reading and went and spent time with these guys. And I remember, you know, meeting Vinny, recording Vinny's voice surreptitiously, uh, you know, observing his behavior. You know, he was always chewing two pieces of gum and, and I got to set, you know, and, and it was like the day before filming and we were in a casino in New Orleans and I went up to McKay, you know, who I didn't really know at that point. And I also thought, man, I might get fired from this because I'm about to go way out on a limb here. But I said, Adam, I think I need to shave my head and I think I need to chew two pieces of gum in every scene. And he was like, great. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, the thing about McKay, yeah. one of his great virtues is how, how immensely unthreatened and immensely trusting he is. In, in his in his actors and collaborators. And, you know, he comes from improv, which is yes and. Yes and is the credo of improv, and, and Adam, you know, exemplifies that. And so in, in the hands of someone else who might have stifled that or, you know, uh, it might not have been what it, what it was, but he really gave me freedom and permission to, to, to just kind of run with the ball. And, yeah, I mean, you know, the big short kind of changed my life in, in another incremental way. And then, of course, it led to, you know, I wouldn't be here talking to you if I hadn't, if that, if I hadn't have had that chance. And then Adam is the reason, Adam and Francine, again, who put me in front of Jesse Armstrong. And when, you know, in between, just quickly noting, you did do that second one with Bigelow, Detroit. You did your first with Sorkin. I know the second is coming up. Uh, this one, yeah. though, was Molly's game. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited for the, the second one is Me the too. trial of the Chicago 7. We'll just let our listeners know. But but now, as you say, this sort of leads to succession coming along in 2018. And I was pretty fascinated to read that it wasn't a matter of Adam saying, hey, you know, I'm you seem like you should be Kendall. It was more a, a, a matter of a, in a very different than when you had met with him for the big short. It's like, which of these siblings interests you? It sounds like, right? Yeah. I, I got, I'd gone over to Adam's house for lunch and he said, I have this script that I'm going to do. And it's sort of a King Lear, Murdoch media industrial complex kind of thing. And I think you'll love it. It's by this great English writer you know, give it a read and, and let me know which part you respond to. And that's how we'll do it. You know, we'll, we'll just, you know, that'll be that. And, and that's how we'll do it, which, you know, I'd never had that before. I've always had to fight to, to within an inch of my life for, for every, for every inch of ground. So I remember reading it and being immediately, you know, it's like, it felt like the greatest Christmas present I'd ever unwrapped, you know, because it was clearly a serious piece of writing with with tremendous depth and pathos and and intelligence. And there's certain things that I feel like I can serve and be part of. And there's a lot of things that I don't feel that way about. But I felt like whatever whatever my life experiences may have been and whatever gravity I might be able to to sort of uh, offer and, and, and it just felt like this is, this is it. This is kind of the thing that I've been waiting for my whole life without knowing what it was, but that, but it was apparent. And then I thought I wanted to play Roman 
you know, <laughs> I read it. That's what I wanted to ask you about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so what was, just because in hindsight, it sounds, it's fascinating to, a fascinating thought exercise, but why, why did Roman stand out to you initially? Well, you know what? It's a, it's a flashier character. And on the page, it's a much flashier character because I'd always seen myself as a character actor. You know, I'd always wanted to play Razzo Rizzo. I'd always wanted to play, you know, it's like the character I got to play in Aaron's movie, Molly's Game. That was the kind of part I'd always wanted to do. And that guy was a real scumbag kind of L.A., you know, Viper Room owner. Yeah. <laughs> I, sh- I shouldn't call him a scumbag, but uh, uh, but you know, like who wears Ed Hardy and and Chrome Hearts jewelry, and that felt like the kind of character that I really wanted to to do. And Roman felt like this bon vivant prick that I thought, oh well, this is something I haven't done before, and and this this feels exciting. And and he said, great. And so I went for about two months thinking that that it was my part. And then I got a call saying, uh, you know, we, we hate to tell you this, but they've offered your part to Kieran Culkin, who I guess self-submitted a tape and they loved it. And, and, and I wrote to Adam, you know, I was, I was pretty, I was pretty, you know, it was like PTSD. Yeah. Um, and Adam said, man, I, I, you know, I'm so sorry. I should never have told you, you, you could have whatever part you wanted. It wasn't my place. And, you know, Jesse just isn't really familiar with your work and doesn't know you, but he thinks that you might be right for the lead of the show, but you have to come in and read for it. So, you know, I didn't think I would get it because I, I, I was up against a very much more established and very formidable, talented actor, you know, who, who was more well-known than me and all that. But there was just, you know, it felt very alive in the room I felt like I was prepared enough. And, you know, at a certain point in, in at the beginning, I think when you have everything to prove, auditions are a very terrifying thing because you just feel, you do, you feel a sense of everything's on the line. I think that feeling is really anathema to, to being able to, to be comfortable and free, which is your job. And so... Over the course of years, I guess, I was able to sort of enter into a more like, fuck it kind of attitude. And yeah, so it went well in the room. And I, and I, and I, and I walked out thinking that, that, I'd, that I'd gotten that part. And it just kind of felt in the pocket to me. And, and you know, it was funny. I drove away from Francine's office. Adam had, Jesse had made a comment and Adam gave me an adjustment and it was just one of those sort of fluid things that, that I felt something kind of happen in the room. And I think Jesse saw the character and I felt, oh, this is where this character lives and this is what it is. And it had to do a little bit with going off the text and uh, the sort of more kind of modern Argo and more, mod- more, more the way Kendall is in the show, I guess. And I drove away from the parking lot and I drove past the Oakwood Apartments, which, you, you know, on Barham Boulevard. Yeah, where every I, uh, pilot season. Yeah, and I was, <laughs> 11, I was 11 years old and I went to stay there with my dad. He sort of like saved up all this money and like worked a night shift as a security guard on top of his job to save up money. And we came out to L.A. for a month and I lived at the Oakwood and, 
you know, sort of failed miserably auditioning for things and I didn't know what I was doing, but, but it was a kind of profound moment to drive away and look up at the, at the place that I used to like make bubbly pizzas with my dad when I was out there for pilot season. But it did, you know, it did change my life and it, and it, and I wouldn't have been ready for it much sooner. I think, you know, it's a heavy thing. It's a heavy weight to carry a show and to carry a show for HBO. And I think you really have to come to a place where you, you can kind of not give a fuck about that and really just be committed to, as I keep going back to, like entering in another space that has nothing to do with what anyone thinks and where it's just you versus yourself in, in, in the ring and a real willingness to, I guess, fail or be fired or whatever it is and, and that nothing will get in the way. I remember I had a conversation with Sean Penn recently who said that he felt like your job as an actor is to be the, your bodyguard for the character, you know, and take a bullet if you have to. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, I, and I really believe that. And so I felt like I had enough experiences working with these sort of legendary directors and in, and in a way, holding my own ground with them. And with Aaron, that was a big, you know, Sorkin is Sorkin. And, you know, he has such a sort of mythology around him. But for the part that I was playing, it was very clear to me. And the part was a very volatile, sort of monstrous guy who was um, a live wire. And I didn't want to feel handcuffed to the apostrophes and to being exact in the texts and also having learned enough about film technique knowing Aaron I can get your words in there but I'm going to fuck around during the take as much as I need to in order to arrive at where it needs to get to to that extremity and insisting on having that freedom even at the risk of conflict you know healthy conflict I would say and he was and is a great collaborator and and I love working with him and you know the Chicago 7 is one of the best scripts I've ever read and it's been around for a long time Spielberg was supposed to make it Paul Greengrass was supposed to make it Ben Stiller was going to make it and now Aaron directed it and and it, you know the act it's Mark Rylance and Eddie Redmayne and Sasha Baron Cohen and myself and Joe Gordon-Levitt it's just incredible casts and that was another sort of uh you know totally walking the plank with a with a very different kind of character and and was was just yeah indescribably exciting for me i guess you know coming back just to the the kendall roy situation once you have the part you know that you guys are doing you got to prep for a pilot which in all likelihood with this group of people was going to go beyond the pilot but you yeah you, but you, don't, you never know you don't never know, know. you know it's right. like Catherine bigelow made a pilot with eddie redmayne that didn't go, you know, my friend Zoe Kazan had done a pilot with, with, uh, Lena Dunham for HBO that didn't go. So you never know. Never know. Well, in this case though, you, you do the work, the prep, I know regardless. And so in this case, I was looking over all the just great books about powerful media families that you have said you read, um, that, you know, that it may not have been, everybody wants to assume that you're, you're playing James Murdoch, and I think there's obviously a lot of similarities, but it's not exclusively that from what you've said. Um, there's even, you know, you've got 
a little Michael Corleone, it seems here, a little, you know, just a whole bunch of different, different ingredients. Archetypes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, I guess I wondered, you know, the night that you guys did your first table read for the pilot, another family of rich New York people was on your mind. And I wondered if they at any point also, uh, if you feel that, that they, uh, or, you know, if you could share who that was and if they influenced your character or, or you think the show itself being, you know, that it's entering the, the ether at a time when, um, maybe it's relevant. I don't know. Yeah. I think, well, to the first point, the Murdoch's are of course a sort of template for for a lot of a lot of the material in the show and they've been written about exhaustively and sort of magnificently by Michael Wolf especially and a few things and I, and and I'm not playing James but there are some things in the groundwater from from reading about their family that led to, because you're, you're sort of a detective looking for clues. You don't know what you're looking for, but every once in a while, something drops in. And, and there was something about, I don't know if it was James or Lachlan who said, you know, they were talking about sort of the breakfast, morning breakfast table where they would have the broadsheets of the newspapers. And, and that the feeling was that their father only spoke the language of strength. I remember being so struck by the idea of, you know, what if strength wasn't your native language? What if you were in a family with this sort of dominating patriarch, primal sort of force of nature who's, who spoke very effortlessly and fluently the language of, of strength and, and dominance, and you tried really hard to and tried to summon that in yourself and locate that in yourself and and act out of a sense of it, even if it was, even if you didn't possess it. But, you know, there's a lot of little sort of dynamical things, if that's a word, like that, that came out of the Murdoch books. But then there's also the, you know, the Redstones and everything that's been playing out in recent years with them and with Viacom. And and there's the Salzburgers and there's, you know, Conrad Black and the Koch brothers and all these families and all of these different sort of dynastic families. And of course, you know, and, and, and Adam had talked about when we made The Big Short, this documentary called Born Rich that he really liked by Jamie Johnson, this filmmaker. And one of the people he talks to in it is Ivanka. And, you know, even the pilot is clearly about... That groundwater, you know, what if there is a family that is at the nucleus of our culture with an amount of toxicity and dysfunction that is sort of malignant and dangerous and poses a real, in a sense, threat to the world? I mean, I I wouldn't argue that the Roys are that, but I think some people would. And, you know, and my job isn't to judge them, it's to empathize with them from the inside. So, you know, Kendall has grown up with this, it's all he knows, and, you know, it's not his fault, in a sense, whatever his complicity is. But, as you say, our table read for, you know, when we made the pilot was was Election Day. And we all went down to Adam's a house he rented in Tribeca to celebrate, you know, Hillary's victory, and then a sort of slow darkening and and sort of yawning abyss opened up under us. And there was, I remember, a sense that all of a sudden the thing we were working on took on a different 
resonance and a, and a new sort of terrible resonance now that this wealthy, pathological family had sort of ascended to this power, this position of power and the immense danger of that. And, you know, and what happens when a family with that much sort of sublimated aggression and hostility and competitiveness, when that plays out on a global scale? So, yeah, I do. I do think that the Trump presidency has landed the show in the zeitgeist in a way that it may not otherwise have been in. But I also think, and this is really the virtue of Jesse's writing, that it's not a topical show. I think it's a universal and, and, and sort of archetypal show that is as much a Shakespearean drama as it is a, you know, a, a contemporary drama. And the sort of story of, of succession and ambition and internecine family rivalry is a very old story. And Jesse is sort of camouflaging this archetypal story in a very savvy, very witty cellophane, you know, rapping. Yeah. I was thinking that another another question you might have been asking yourself at the beginning of this whole thing was not just, you know, who are possible reference points that I can study, but also fundamentally, why do these siblings want to be CEO in the first place? They're not going to be any, I mean, they don't need the money. They're all very wealthy regardless. What is the appeal? And I wondered if you can at least speak for Kendall about what you believe that is. Well, a few things. I mean, if you've grown up in a way, I think, where you have had affection and love and tenderness withheld from you, you have a real wound there. And I think a profound need to gain that attention and validation and love, which I think is something that really is driving these characters. You know, I've, I've said this before, but it is, it's something that I've thought about a lot and still think about and to answer that question. Something that Jung said that where love is absent, power fills the vacuum. And I think, you know, that's something that I see in Hollywood. That's something I see in Washington. That's something, you know, that's the real, to me, essence of the, of the show. And, and also what makes it, I think, so sympathetic. You know, there's the pathos of that is a very relatable thing. He's trying to fill some hole and some wound inside of him. I think what's, what, you know, what you say about they don't need the money, that's right. I mean, they, what, what, what they need in a sense, you know, they, they, they've been raised with all this power, but they've not been raised with any personal power. They've been raised with the trappings of power and with money, which really counts for nothing if you don't have a sense of power internally. And I think they're searching for that. And I think they're looking for it in the wrong places, but that is where they're looking for it. You know, I'm, I, you know, I have two kids under two, and I was just reading a book the other day called No Bad Toddlers. And it's about discipline. It's a, it's a fantastic book, but it's about gentle discipline and guidance, you know, because yeah. my kid is entering the, the terrible twos. Um, and, 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 and this happens when you're working on something, everything kind of relates to it and you sort of read it through, refracted through the lens of, of, of Kendall. And he was talking about children who are essentially abused or spanked 
or shown negative reinforcement and how they come to connect that with love, you know, and, 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 and in a way, I think whether or not our father was physically abusive, he was certainly emotionally abusive to us. And in a sense, we're, we're locked in that dynamic. You know, it is a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing. And so we keep going back to that dynamic, thinking that it might heal us or, 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 or answer something or resolve something. So that's, you know, that, that's my best no, answer. That's great. It's a great answer. I wonder if I can close with just three things that are going to, I think, sort of serve as a, hopefully a prism into bigger picture, you know, scenes that I want to ask you about that I think maybe open up broader conversations about the show. I want to go back towards the end of season one, first of all, where the sort of Chappaquiddick sequence, which has very little dialogue after the accident through the rest of that episode, and then builds in the following episode to the moment where the the season basically ends with you being, you learn that your father knows what you've done and you're now sort of beholden to him. I want to ask you about just the process for you of doing that as an actor. I, I saw one thing where you had said that some aspect of that almost made you want to quit acting. It was just such a such a grinding thing. And yet it's also some of the best acting I think I can remember any time um, you. on your part. And so I guess just how you approached that whole last few episodes of season one and and, uh, and why you've said that it was a turning point for you in a number of ways. Well, listen, to be honest, it never made me want to quit acting because it was too hard or because I felt like I went through the grinder. I, I actually felt like I got to the end of what I could possibly offer as an actor. I kind of felt like, and, and, and in a way, this is what you, you hope for. I think you want to be, you want to feel fully expressed, but I, I felt almost so fully expressed and that some tension in me that I had held my whole life was resolved in a sort of that had been this sort of Gordian knot in the center of my chest was, was resolved in a cathartic way as through Kendall, when the sort of child in him, you know, when, in, in that final scene. But I, the feeling was, I've got, I got nothing left, you know? And I think maybe actors come to that point and feel that way. And, and then, you know, I guess you go replenish and, and, and something draws you back uh, or or something gets reignited but i did feel like a sense of um i don't have anywhere f i can go any further than this and i mm -hmm. wouldn't want to keep doing this if i felt like i was just as he says in hamlet higher in salary not revenge you yeah. know it should be revenge so a, a, a crime of passion you know an act of passion that sequence you know, I always knew it was going to end with a Chappaquiddick-like event, but it, it wasn't until I read it at the table read, which was on a Saturday before we started filming them on a Monday Whew. in 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 Ledbury, England, uh, that it landed on me just the magnitude of it and the, and how harrowing it was, and I had no idea how to do it, and I guess it was a it was. The only uh, thing that, that felt crystal clear to me 
was that I had to go through the ordeal as much as it was possible and sustain, if you think of it as like a, a minor key sort of screeching violin note, sustain that note for however long we were shooting the episode and, and, and stay in that harrowed place. And so some of that involved some technical things and some of that involved, you know, the sound department let me play certain music from these giant speakers. We would be blasting, you know, this uh, Penderecki music like at 3 a.m. in the English countryside, you know, as I'm crawling in the in the mud and the water. I don't want to talk about it in a way that seems like I'm, you know, because actors do this, you sort of, they talk about their preparation and they sort of make it sound so glorified or important. I guess it was, uh, yeah, I tried as best as I could to believe in the reality of, 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 of those circumstances. And, and I guess your imagination kind of takes you somewhere. Your imagination takes you somewhere, but also being in a, in a lake that's at freezing temperature for multiple takes again and again and again and again, and, and doing that, you know, just doing the sort of physical aspect of it in a way takes care of it. You don't have to do any acting. All I wanted to do was get out of that lake. And at the same time, I wanted to go back in and try and, 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 and save uh, the boy. And, you know, it was just one of those, it's one of those great pieces of writing. I remember a friend of mine was working on a Tony Kushner play and she said that sometimes the writing is so good that it, it's like a set of magnets that it just pulls out of you whatever it needs to. Well, whatever you did there, it was, that was, that was unbelievable. That was the, that first thing I wanted to Thanks, cover. Man. The the Thank second you, thing I, is, is that that obviously leaves off that for you, the actor, you know, now you've got a, a gap until you come back for season two and then coming back essentially at not much further along in the, in the life of the character. No, uh, it's about 12 way, hours later. Yeah. 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 And and knowing the way you you get into your character and, and stay in your character, I just I guess, you know, knowing that you're gonna come back as this guy who is numb and haunted to the point where he's willing to be vulnerable with his sister, which he's never really done before, where he's willing to almost confess to his mother, where he has to be almost catatonic when his dad makes him go to the home of the guy who he had killed. Yeah. Just all of this for you as an actor to have to sustain that during the off season and then come back and be in it again, what was that like? Well, the truth is I didn't sustain it in the off season. You know, okay. I, I walked away from it and put it down. And I had my first child and I was living in Copenhagen. And, you know, I, uh, I went and did a Guy Ritchie movie, which was basically a, you know, a sort of almost like a campy farce. Because I don't think you can do these things in a, in a tempered or half measured way. And I do sort of go to extremes and I think it's important to kind of enter into it in, in, in an extreme way. And you don't know if the thread will be there for you to pick it back up again when you return to it. But, but I also think there was enough sort of sense memory on a cellular level of, of, of what I went through. And at that point I didn't watch the show yet. I hadn't watched the show, but I remembered what the experience was. You know, music, music is a great trigger as well as, 
you know, I sort of, I reread Crime and Punishment right before we started season two and, and it became clear that sort of the directive for season two, as opposed to season one, was to sort of carry the weight of what, what Dostoevsky calls the monstrous pain that Raskolnikov is experiencing that separates him from everyone else. And so, you know, that's not a walk in the park and that's not something anybody wants to do. And certainly I didn't want to do it. You know, I don't want to live in a place that feels monstrously painful and estranged. Um, so I guess by forcing myself down into that place and trying to, and, and failing, but trying mostly to sustain that and, and, and to live in that place for the duration of the season created in me a powerful need to get out of that place and to reach out. So when Jesse wrote those moments, like you said, where I try to reach out to Shiv or I have a need to connect with my mother, they were so pressurized. The pain that he's carrying and the sense of um, wanting some kind of reprieve from it, that felt very real to me. But yeah, it was a hard, you know, it was a very internal season. It's like there wasn't a lot in the writing, you know, and that's what's so great about Jesse's writing. It's very, it's very elliptical and it's very opaque. And it's your job really to fill in the writing and to, and to, I think, deepen it and embody something that will come across. And so I think this season was a lot more internal and a lot more sort of behavior that will tell a story in miniature in a way of what's going on, the sort of inner contours of, of, a, of a character rather than, the, rather than the outer ones. Last thing I will subject you to is just a, a question about where this most recent season kind of wound up, where we're seeing Kendall essentially be what you would liken to the Manchurian candidate, just going through life in a way that, you know, he's not totally there behind the eyes even, and That's yet right. he's yeah. therefore can be weaponized. And, you know, we're seeing the behavior in manifest itself in his behavior in, in weird ways, the stealing of the batteries just to presumably maybe feel a little alive or yeah. whatever, uh, the rapping for his dad, um, yeah. just all this. But it ends with Kendall obviously doing something that I wonder if you just, I understand you don't want to necessarily tell the audience how to how to see things, but I have to ask how you justified in your own mind the what, what happens at the end where knowing that his dad has some very damaging information on him to nevertheless still turn on his dad and for his dad obviously to react almost with being impressed with that smirk. I guess I just wonder where you felt his mind was as, as we as we leave the show at the end of season two. Well, I'll tell you, I'll, gi I'll, I'll give you my answer, but I'll, I should also preface it by saying it's a bit of a false answer because I didn't answer that question for myself in a, in a, in any sort of very clear way. I had a lot of feelings, but I didn't want to pin anything down. And it was different things for me at different times. But I do think, and my conviction is probably different than Jesse's conviction. You know, there's the, the scene with my father and I on the ship before the press conference was written a few times and and in an, in earlier drafts it's essentially him saying to me that I'm that I'm not a killer 
is meant to be the catalyst that that is the sort of like hammer firing pin trigger that that propels me. I felt like that was not new information to me. And essentially, that's our dynamic. And I know that he thinks that about me. And he says essentially the same to me in the pilot. You know, sometimes it is a big dick competition that I'm soft. And so Jesse and I had a lot of discussions about it, a lot of emails. And, you know, he's, he's, he's an incredibly open collaborator and puts up with me, which is, which is a lot when we're working. I tell, you know, I said to him that I feel like we're missing something that takes it to a new level of me perceiving something in my father that is different and that is something kind of ineradicably bad. That I know that he's a bastard. I know that he's a monster. I don't know that he's evil. And Nick Braun, who plays Cousin Greg, we were, we were, we were hanging out one night and he was talking about the Miller play, All My Sons. And that moment in, in, in the play where the son realizes that his father knew about the faulty airplane parts and his complicity in that. Just saw Tracy Letts do the yeah, revival this yeah, past oh year. It was, it's, yeah, it's fresh on my mind. It's a brilliant, you know, sort of piece of writing and, and the dramaturgy of it is brilliant. And, and it felt like we needed that, something that would hinge. And I think Jesse woke up at like three in the morning one night with this idea for, the, for my father to, to say no real person involved as related to the boy, which had never been invoked before. He had never brought up what happened before. And when he said that, and when I read that, that was it for me. I couldn't unsee that or unhear that. And it, and it forever altered, you know, whatever, whatever altar of my father that I had been, that I had worshiped on was in that moment broken and something else came into me and became from that moment clear to me. And in a way I was freed from the sort of penitence and from the kind of playing possum that, that, that I'd that I'd been, you know, submitting myself to. But also I found in that revelation the power that I'd never found before because my conviction was so clear. And because in a sense, it wasn't about me. It wasn't about sort of achieving my own ambition the way that it was in season one. It was about something else, uh, in a sense, revenge. Well, I cannot... Thank you enough for this conversation, for the show, for it's been fun following your whole uh, body of work and at being there uh, in January, which seems like like years ago at the Critics' Choice Awards when you were finally, you know, just I, I know it's not the reason you do what you do, but it's nice that, to see people recognizing the, the great work there. And, and since thank then, you, and I just really appreciate you. Thank you. That means so much to me. It really means so much to me. I Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. 
Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.